Why do kids play sports? Is it to go pro or earn a scholarship? Or are they looking for extraordinary experiences that they can build on for the rest of their lives? I'm Coach Dave Vasileros, and this is the Dad Bod Soccer Podcast, where we will explore life lessons and universal truths taught by youth sports. I want to help the next generation of parents and coaches keep youth sports about the kids. And I am so glad that you're joining me. Welcome back to the Dad Bod Soccer Podcast. This is Coach Dave. Today, we're going to be talking about goalkeepers, and the title of the episode is Goalkeepers Standing Alone. Garrett Weldon, who's a good friend, a close friend, someone whom I trust, we've worked together, we've talked a lot, as you'll see, he's a very good conversationalist, he's a thinker, he was a goalkeeper in high school, he's coached goalkeepers, also a wrestler. He comes with a really cool perspective on how this works and what it means to be in the head of a goalkeeper, particularly for kids. Now we're going to focus on the point of view of, of the parents and coaches, but also to bring out of the kids what's going on when they're standing back there, feeling all that pressure. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to keep talking about you as soon as you say, glad to be here, Dave. Dave, glad to be here. Yes. All right, great. I'm going to keep talking about Garrett because he's a really impressive individual. Not only was he and is he a great athlete, he has a doctor of physical therapy. And I'm going to throw this in here. When I tore my meniscus two years ago, Garrett helped me get through it, not just with the exercises, but mentally he coached me and supported me, helped me see what the future could be. We'll talk a little bit more what it means for a person who used to be an athlete to get an injury that makes them feel like they're not an athlete anymore. But that was, it was hard for me and Garrett was there the whole time. He's also a professional sales guy. He's a founder of a company and avid outdoorsman. Garrett, here's my question for you. What is it about nature that makes you want to sleep outside on your back, no tent, under the stars, backpacking around for like days? What is that? So they've asked these questions as if there's a good answer. But when I'm out in nature, here's something I think about a little bit is you have to orient yourself to something. Out in nature, it's a unique opportunity because you don't orient to people. You orient to things and you have to contemplate how did these things come to be? And it takes you into an arena of unknown. And so in many ways, nature, Dave, lying on your back, looking at the stars, seeing sunsets, seeing vast bodies of water that you would never see otherwise, brings a humility to oneself about who you are, what you're doing in the world, that it's important, but not like so important that you should be grandiose about it. So it's a recentering, a reorienting, which I know is not unique in my perspective, but that's how I think about it. And this is why Garrett's on the podcast. Garrett, another question for you. When you look at the world and you see all the problems, is there one problem that you'd be willing to put all your time and energy into solving? Dave, here's a problem I have is when you speak of absolutes, all my time, all of my energy, I don't do well in absolutes. I think I'd be willing to put some time and some energy, some focus, maybe a higher focus than others into solving certain things. And the one thing that keeps spinning around and around, which is different, but currently what I'm thinking on in this domain and what I'm starting to drift to in thought and in study and in pushing conversations back and forth is how not to die young and then two, how to still be able to be young enough to play with grandkids and great grandkids. 
And that is a different way of encompassing all the things I've been involved in healthcare. I've been involved in helping people at very isolated incidents of acute injury. I've helped people in chronic pain. I've helped people with different system failures. I've helped people access healthcare so that it can be affordable to their family. And it's like, why, why, why? And I read a book and it was Sapiens actually. And he talks about a tribe that when they became elderly, instead of nourishing them or nourishing the individual, the initiation almost to manhood, as I recall, it was the men that would do this, is they would just go put a hatchet in the back of it. Mm. You're too elderly, you're too fragile, you're too weak. And so you can no longer support, you know, you can't contribute to the tribe. And that has struck me as to why am I in healthcare? Why do I believe in this space? And it has to do something about the value of the individual for the whole lifespan that they're in. Mm. And there's something to be said about being able to do not just things in your youth, but as you are a father, which I now am, as a grandfather, and then my hopes, even a great grandfather, that's meaningful at the individual level because mm. you really hatched him. Wow. I, I had no idea that that's happened. I mean, I, I guess it doesn't surprise me given the, the vast kind of history of humanity and all the different ways they've had to manage resources and, and, and all of that. But we won't talk, this isn't a healthcare podcast, so we're not going to talk too much about healthcare, but that's how you and I met trying to solve some really big problems that are on the financing side of healthcare. And what has opened my eyes in this industry is that that commitment to purpose throughout the lifespan, through all the different phases, that's not universal. People would like to say it is, maybe when we talk about it like this, oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone has, everyone has value and we should find ways to, to let people contribute in every stage. But if you look at the way the system's set up, I'd argue that that's probably not the way that everyone looks at it. And, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll have a, a healthcare financing and, and purpose conversation someday, but for this one, we'll leave it at that. Next question. And then we're going to get into goalkeeping. When you were younger, did you have a coach that made an impact on you? And if so, what did you learn? And what was it that made that coach kind of stand apart from others? I did have a coach. It was my soccer coach. He was an individual that was trying out for the Olympic teams and would have made it, but got his knee blown apart. Hmm. And so he was at that caliber of individual, but that caliber of just thought as well around. Me. And so he became our coach. And one of the biggest things, and I'll give you an example of a story. So we were in a tournament play. It was an in-state tournament, but we were in the division one bracket, whatever, the highest bracket in the tournament. We were in the semifinals, I believe. It was a breakaway situation. And so as the breakaway situation was, I'm on my line, taking away their angles and deciding when and if I should attack the ball or just keep covering the goal. And there was an error that person made that put the ball just a little bit too far in front of Adam. So I pounced on that as I believe a goalkeeper should and ended up having to go into a power slide. So I'm trying to protect myself, trying to get to the ball. And I do, but in so doing this striker ends up in a slide as well, cleats up and lands a cleat right across my ribs, mm. ended up bruising my ribs, threw my breath away. I couldn't breathe. The ref called time and my coach comes out and he says, what do you want to do? And I'm can barely breathe and hurting. <laughs> I got the ball, still have the ball. What he's asking is, do you want to come in or do you want to stay in? And he let me stay in. I said, I don't want to come. I want to stay in. I can do this. Let me stay in. So he let me stay in and continue through not only the semifinals game, but into the finals game. And that was a philosophy 
that he had with his goalkeepers that was very impactful to me. Very, very rarely would he dictate our time and goal because you have ups and you have downs emotionally, physically, mentally, any type of way you could have an up and down, you go through that and goal. But he would always empower us to say, what do you want to do? Mm. And that was super impactful to me because I would see how he would treat some field players. And if they weren't giving it, they're all men, they're riding the pine. But in goal, it was often us knowing the position we were of last line of defense, first line of offense. What do we want to do? He's an impactful coach. Yeah. And, and as a kid, and you were what, 16, 17? Yeah, like 14 to 18 while I was on his team. Yeah. And that's a time very formative for young men. Well, young women too, all youth in that age group, kind of, we'll call them the older adolescents. And I've been reading some studies. In fact, maybe I'll talk about this in a future podcast, but I came across a study that said coaches take over as having more influence on the older adolescents in their physical effort levels. In other words, as opposed to parents, parents have a kind of an equal impact on the kids from say 10 to 14, but then 15 to 18, the coach's influence grew. And I hear a story like that and I say, okay, he taught you that you're, you can be self-determinative and that he trusted you to make a choice, but then you probably felt the responsibility and the accountability to step up, perform, because he relied on you to make that call. Youth, especially the older adolescent age, they want to have a say. They want, they want the team to be their team. They don't want it to be the coach's team. Too often coaches make it their team when the kids are 15, 16, 17. The kids, it's their team, just like that was your choice. And the kids will step up. You know, you build an environment as a coach where they own the team. They will step up. And that's a great example. And what was that coach's name, by the way? Ryan Mitchell. Ryan Mitchell. Dave, and you referenced studies, but it's interesting. As I've read books and studies after time frame I was referencing, there's a book called The Drive or Drive by Daniel Peake that says there's three things that really motivate people, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And so you look at autonomy, and if you really believe in that, I think that's what my coach did. He gave me a little bit of autonomy. And I'll tell you, it wasn't just in that moment where I got a shutout. Mm. I remember a time when, man, I was getting pounded and I was asking to come out. And in that moment, he just pulled me aside and said, what do you really want to do? You really want to come out? Coach, I'm not doing well. You don't want to come out, get in. And so there were also times where he'd override my inappropriate decision, but still make me part of the conversation where it's like, no, you have a purpose. Let's, let's keep, let's keep doing this. You got this. And that belief that he demonstrated in you, not just when things were going well, but when things were going poorly, I hope that that also got in and left a lesson, right? It's you, you want to hear the worst one yeah. when things were going poorly. Yeah. This is 18 year old. This is like our last time. After this, we're done. High school ball's done. This is the last club ball. We're finally in the semifinals of the state cup. We're playing against the team. If you track back to when we first got together a team four or five years previous to that, they beat us 6-0. Mm. It wasn't even funny. We, we couldn't even hang with them. They were putting balls in places in the net that I didn't even know you could get a ball. <laughs> and we get into semifinals and it is 0-0. We've gone the whole time and we're into overtime. Golden goal overtime is how it was structured in our state. I don't know if they still do. Did they still allow flip throw-ins? Not anymore. Nope, not anymore. This is the era of flip throw-ins. So you could basically turn any throw-in into a corner kick is what would happen. And they were well up in, in the attacking third, let's call it, top of the 18 yard where they were doing throw-in. And he put it on goal. 
So I had positioned myself in hindsight out of position. I was way too far forward. So I ended up backpedaling, backpedaling. And if you know, a throw-in is indirect. So it's got to touch somebody before it goes in the net or it's no goal. Indirect, unlike a corner kick, which is direct. And I'm backpedaling, backpedaling, eye on the ball, and it is going for the top right core. That's where it's headed, top right core. Golden goal, semifinal state cup. And I hear the strikers coming in. Can't see them, but I hear them. And this is a team, remember, they know how to get the ball in the net. And so I have a decision to make. Do I push it up over the goalpost and I know they're going to get a corner off of it? Or do I take the risk and not touch it and let the strikers come in? And if they get any touch on it, it's a goal. And all this is going through your head in microseconds uh -huh. as I'm backpedaling, backpedaling, backpedaling. So I get into a power dive, push it up over the top of the uh, top of the net, right up over the crossbar and end up placing it in the top right-hand corner. Of the oh goal. no. Top right-hand corner of the goal. And in so doing, I mean, it is top corner. I'm wrapped around the post, just that's the hardest I've ever hit in the post, just wrapped around the post and it's a goal because I touched it. So I put it in. So my last play on this club team was an own goal in state cup semifinals against a team we had never won at that point. I guess we never did. And so I'm on the ground in tears and our team just kind of in shock and we're coming around, you know, my, my defensive team who a good relationship with come and come for me. My coach comes on the field and the first place he goes is me. He picks me up, he gives me a hug and he says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And that is, I mean, that's the battle of the goalkeeper, but that's the, the support you need of a coach that is willing to raise, if you will, goalkeepers. And it could be argued I played it wrong. I mean, clearly I played it wrong because no one else got the ball. I got the ball. It was indirect. I put it in the top of the net. I played it wrong. In that moment, the highest stakes that we've been working for for four, five, six years as a team to get first place he goes is me. Gives me a hug and says, I'm proud of you. That's what it means to be a goalkeeper coach. Yeah. What I hear from that story is a coach who understood that youth sports is about kids and it's about loving them, caring about them, and then lifting their levels up of performance, whether that's on the field, mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it is, boosting them. And at that point, he couldn't help you with your physical performance. That was over. They understood that you needed an emotional boost. And, and that kind of story gets right to my heart. I think there's millions of stories like that in this country. I think there's millions of coaching moments that no one knows about except Garrett Weldon and Ryan Mitchell. You're the only two who know this story. Now there's going to be a whole bunch of other people who know it. And I think there are millions of stories like that that can and should inspire coaches. And most, by the way, most coaches in this country are volunteer parent coaches, the vast majority. It should inspire us to, to take a look at what we're doing and why we're doing it and say, who's my Garrett? who needs to see that I am proud of him and that he needs the emotional boost. Sometimes he needs the physical boost. Sometimes he needs the kick in the butt, but it's all coming from a place of, of caring and love for you as a human. That is why I'm doing this podcast, by the way. And, and you led perfectly into this next set of kind of topics I want to cover. You talked about the pressure. You're the last guy, last line of defense. What were some of the traits that you needed to succeed uh, that we would point out to help develop other young goalkeepers? They have to sit with that idea that you're the last line of defense, first line of offense, which means you know, without a doubt, no questions asked, there are times where your errors will manifest in a goal. Hmm. There's, just, there's just no other way. And you have to sit with that. And I think you have to be okay with that. 
a recognition that, of course, there's errors all across the field, but that your errors will lead to goals. The second thing that really drove home for me was I'd found it in a magazine. I can't find it. But as I recall, it was a one page in a magazine and the closing line was something along the lines of not in my box, hmm. which is a statement of, of attitude. Like as soon as you enter that 18, you better watch your ankles, your knees, your eyes. I don't care because I'm coming at and for the ball. But if I have to go through you to get there, I will. Mm-hmm. And so there's this attitude of not in my box. And when you start combining those, you gain a certain level of respect from your team because they know that if something enters your box, that you are going to do everything you possibly can to, to capture that ball. And you do that over repetitions, over repetitions, over repetitions to prove, if you will, particularly to your defensive line, that when you yell keeper, you mean it. Yep. You're coming. Yep. And it got to the point we play, we didn't play a flat back that with my sweeper, we got to point of such a good relationship that when I would call keeper, even if he was in mid swing, I remember one in particular, he's in mid swing to volley the ball out. I yell keeper. He goes flat and lets me go right through him to get the ball. Oh man. Because he knew if I was yelling keeper, that means I'm coming. Right. I'm coming 100%. What you're describing is something that's unique to a defensive line and their goalkeeper, which is a, a level of trust that I don't think exists on the other, between the other positions on the field. I don't think so. Having, I was an attacking, I was an attacking player, right? I was always up front. You knew the kids that you could rely on. You knew the kids who would bust it, who would really try to get on the end of a cross, but it wasn't the same. There's this kind of brotherhood between particularly center backs and goalkeepers. And there's a trust. And I'll, and I'll flip that around and I'll say, if you have a goalkeeper who has not demonstrated his or her willingness to come and command the box, mistakes notwithstanding, mistakes are going to happen, but has not demonstrated the willingness to come out hard, to be totally committed to win the ball, that undermines the trust in the back line. And basically the whole team starts to shake and, and, and they don't have, I don't want to describe it. You can watch a team where they don't trust their goalkeeper. And you can see it yeah, in five minutes. They don't, they don't have a last line of defense. Yep, that's right. And it scares them. So, I mean, you're nodding your head on this kind of special relationship between the center backs and the goalkeeper. Talk a little bit more about that. Let me give you another example. There was a team we would play and the striker was phenomenal. When we played him, he was either putting a ball in the net or he was assisting. And there was one game in particular with the center back of mine where we made a bet. First one to get this individual on the ground, put him on the turf. Or the other one, I can't read something. I don't know. It's probably dinner or something. <laughs> the whistle blows. And my center back basically knew as soon as that person entered my box with the ball, game's over. I'm going to win because I'm calling and I'm getting them. And the odds that a goalkeeper gets a yellow card, even when they should, are very low. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, you can, you can ride that edge just a little bit for a barter like this. The whistle blows. He takes off in a dead sprint, knocks him to his butt before he'd ever even touched the ball. <laughs> He's at the center of the field, gets a yellow card for it, comes back to me and says, I won on that. <laughs> the same individual. So there were times, depending on, on how the team was attacking a corner kick, that I would place someone on my, on my near pole or my back pole because I knew there was a weakness there and, and just depending on how they were playing the corner attack. And sometimes I'd bring him onto one of my poles, like my near pole, for example. And I drilled into them. If I'm bringing you on there, you do not leave until I tell you, like, go. 
I had forgotten. I'm back up in front of the 18. We're making an attack to the other side. I'd cleared it out. He yelled back, can I leave that? Can I leave the <laughs> Because there's that level of trust between us that it's, mm. that you can have those moments of camaraderie because you know when it really comes down to it that you're there for each other yep. in communication and in action. And that's, that's something that's super special with the backline and a goalkeeper and should be. I see all too often that goalkeepers get into, they talk too much. Mm. They, they bark instead of command as they're running their back line. They, they try and reduce all creativity of the back line mm. to what they think should happen in every single play. And you lose a lot of respect in that way, as opposed to being another set of eyes for them, yep. of helping them see an attack or run that they can't see and bringing their attention to it. That is also a way that you can develop that trust with that back line is being another set of eyes for them. I don't have sponsors, but there's a company that I want to tell you about. Kaye, which is spelled C-A-L-L-E, is a street soccer brand and nonprofit organization. Kaye's mission is to promote community-based street soccer courts where players can play street soccer for free. No coaches, no drills, just play. They donate 10% of all their sales to the nonprofit Free the Game, which builds public street soccer courts around the country. Check them out at kaye.com, C-A-L-L-E.com. Yeah, and in a way that is helpful, not helpful, not them centric. I, I do. I watch pro games, and there's a, and I'll say right, the Jordan Pickford, who's the goalkeeper for Everton. He's also, I think, the starting goalkeeper for the English national team. He's got some, he's got some really good reaction saves and distributes the ball okay. I don't think he's he's one of the top ten goalkeepers in the world. I don't think he's in the top twenty, but he's the best English have. Anytime I watch Everton play, and the only time I watch Everton play is when they're playing Liverpool, because of course I'm a Liverpool guy. I would never watch Everton. But when I watch him play, anytime there's a shot on goal, he explodes in anger at his defenders. He's punching the air. He's screaming at them. And I just think to myself, what is that accomplishing? Does that inspire more trust and, and relationship with those center backs? Now, they're professional men playing, but, but I think the concept's the same, whether you're 25 and getting paid millions or you're 16 and you're playing, you're paying to play. And then I watched the Liverpool goalkeeper, Alisson, and when they get a shot on him and he makes this great save, he stands up, he, he claps his hands together and he's like patting his defenders on the back. He might point something out, but he's not screaming. He's not yelling or getting in their face. And I just wonder, you know, is that just style or is one really kind of clearly superior to the other in terms of an approach? In my mind, one is clearly superior because when he's clapping and pointing things out, my guess is he's going, thank you so much for putting them to the outside. Mm. And I know, I know you had a choice to make. Thank you so much for pushing them to the outside so it took away that angle. Mm -hmm. Like, I can cover yeah. Or I know you had a choice to make and you saw that they put a bad touch on the ball. So you are going to position yourself in case they got there for the cross because you knew I had the breakaway. I'll tell you the most boring games is when you don't touch the ball at all. Uh, so I don't know why you'd be so mad. You know, sometimes when you get a shot from the goal, it's like, <laughs> look, that's it. Thank I'm goodness. There. I guess it's 25 million a year or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to agree with you. So let, let me, tr on the traits and habits. I'm going to list four. You tell me what are the most, which one of these four is the most important for a goalkeeper. And now think about, let's say a 10 year old, they're starting to play goal. Maybe that's the first time they've been in goal as a position rather than everyone being rotated through. Okay. Athleticism, courage, being verbal, 
being mentally strong, which of those four would you say is most important for that 10, 11 year old? Mentally strong, mentally strong. Let me give you some thoughts around that. I didn't articulate it this way growing up. We had a picture on our wall that said something along the lines of winning is not everything, but making the effort to win is. Mm. There's something like that. I don't love it fully. And let me explain why. But here's how I think about it now is winning is not everything, but being invited back to play the next game is because life and even sports is not one single event. It's a series of events. Mm -hmm. And it's across the series of events that you want to continue to have the opportunity to play to be invited back. And so the mental strength, if I had to define it, it's a recognition that the purpose of the game, big capital T G, the game, is to win the series of games that are happening, which said another way is to be invited to play again and again and again. Hmm. And so the mental fortitude has to have the perspective that it's not just about today. And so it's the mental fortitude to look at it past one game. Yeah. I like the way you put that. And I'm going to talk about, I'm staying on my Liverpool theme. Liverpool coach Jurgen Klopp once called his team, this is a quote, mentality monsters after winning the 2022 FA Cup against Chelsea. It's on the same theme of mental strength. Can that be taught? Or is that just something that you're born with? And again, thinking about 10, 11, 12, we don't expect 10, 11, 12 year olds to have the mental fortitude of a 35 year old or whatever it is. But for at an age appropriate level, can it be taught and encouraged? The thing that comes to mind, and I have it back on my shelf, actually, is a book called The Race, Life's Greatest Lessons. Uh, it's a poem. Both me and my dad have memorized it, at least at some point in time. And it's the story of a, of a young runner that falls down three times mm -hmm. during the race. Yep. Before the first fall, he's out in first place, and then he slowly loses, loses time. And it talks about how each time he got up because he heard his dad's voice saying, get up and take your place, win this race. And then at the very last line goes something like, like this, when he crosses, so fallen in in last place, and to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do too well. To me, you won, his father said, you rose each time you fell. And then it goes on. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my race. So this was a story that me and my dad would share back and forth in wrestling in particular, because mm. you get beat up, yeah. but in, in soccer as well, where the idea, and it goes with what I was saying before, but the mentality to teach someone to get up each time you fall, to get up and take your place, and that taking your place at times does not mean you come in first place, but it means that you win the race, i.e. start what you finish, keep going is something I think that can be taught. But I think it's got to be taught pretty specifically, not, not in, in, in analogies or anything. It's like, this is, this is what we're trying to do, folks. But when you ask that question, that's from my childhood, something that taught me. Yeah, I'm going to put that in the show notes with a link. What a great, very specific, concrete thing that coaches and parents can use to prepare their kids and teach them mental strength eventually will be that opposing players do not want to come into your box because they know that you are a terrifying individual to have to go up against. That's eventually where they will get if they stick with it and they're really working at it and they physically develop and all of that. But at 10, 
11, 12, when they're starting to specialize in that position, maybe the most important lesson is, hey man, get back up. You get back up and I'm going to cheer for you. I just got bumps because I'm a dad and I can hear myself saying this and I can see your dad saying this to you. Get back up. You pick that ball out of the net. You put it back up there. You shake it off and we're going to go again. And we're going to go again. That's mental strength at a 10, 11, 12 year old level. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. And let, let's get on to parents since we're talking about parents. I was talking to a friend of my 18 year old. He's a starting goalkeeper for a local varsity team who is, you know, let's say top three, four, five teams in the state here in Idaho. Also plays for a really strong club team. And I asked him a bunch of questions about being a goalkeeper, just getting prepared for today. And one thing I said to him, what would you tell parents of goalkeepers? Let's say you could go back and talk to your parents when you were just starting out. And I said, what would you want parents to know or how can they support their kids? And he gave me a couple answers. I'm going to hold those answers because I'd love to hear your answers. What should parents of goalkeepers do or say? We've talked a lot about maybe the emotional side and some of those ideas. And I think those stand on their own and could be carried over to this. But one of the things that I see happening in youth goalkeepers from a tactical standpoint that I would really want them to know is protect yourself. Mm. I do not see enough time being trained in these young keepers of how to protect themselves in the different positions they would find themselves when going after the ball. That is one of the reasons I see people leaving this position mm -hmm. is because they get put in situations, say it's a breakaway and they go do a slide tackle and they don't have their knee up to protect them and they just get hammered. Yep. Even in 10, 12, 13, 14 year olds. So protect yourself would be one of my top ones. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I am not a goalkeeper coach. I've never been a goalkeeper. Most teams don't have a specialized goalkeeper coach. And we're just talking soccer here, but hockey and anywhere where there's a goalkeeper involved. Most teams have just one coach for everybody, but that is an area I haven't done well in. I've never even thought of that. I've worked with kids on, like I'll watch YouTube videos, I'll prepare and I'll run a session or two with goalkeeper focus, footwork and angles and, and decision-making kind of all that stuff. But this is a really important one. I'm going to go back and watch some stuff and maybe I'll find some things on YouTube or whatever, some really good training things that, that we can teach. And I'll put those in the show notes as well. Cause what is it I mean, when it comes from a referee standpoint, number one is safety of the players, right? That's the number one thing for referees and coaches is keep the players safe. After that, it's make sure the rules are enforced. After that, it's hope that it's a really good game. So this is, this is an important one. Let me tell you a story that drives this home. So this was high school ball breakaway because high school ball, frankly, where we played was just a lot of kick it up and run. Yep. And so there was not a lot of strategy coming out of the back, but what it led to was some breakaway plays. And I came off my line and went out for a slide tackle, ended up getting his knee to my face. Mm. Ultimately took my whole upper lip and folded it around all of my teeth to the point where it almost got bit off and blood was, at least as the coach said, was coming out through my lip and my lip was stuck into my teeth. It's the only time I had to come off. I had to, mm -hmm. like because of blood. Hey, you were a mangled mess. Yeah, I was a mangled mess. So ended up in the hospital with 30 some odd stitches because it crossed the lip line and Oof. went far back. Had to bring in a plastic surgeon. As I was leaving the hospital, in the room next to me was the attacker who I knocked out that I didn't know. I didn't know I'd knocked him out. And he was in there for concussion and also had some stitches he had to get, get sewn up. But the only reason I knocked him out was because as I slid, my knee was up. 
I was in appropriate sliding position. So my knee was up guarding my stomach and my face. Even though he connected with me, my knee connected with him mm. and stopped, knocked him out. He had to go to the hospital and we met at the hospital and shook hands. It was, it was a great play. There was no fault of anybody. Yep. It was legal. It was, it was a clean play. But if I didn't have my knee up, I mean, that's the force that we hit at with. If I didn't have my knee up, I wouldn't have just been a mangled physical mess. This could have gone much deeper into concussion, traumatic brain injury yep. type stuff. Protect yourself. Protect yourself. Okay. I'm adding that in. L let me tell you what my, what my son's friend said. And this is, this is a little on the softer side. He said, I wish my parents wouldn't say things like, hey, I get really worried watching you play. I'm worried that you're going to get hurt. He says, that gets in my head. And then I start worrying. He says, don't say those things. I thought that was really good feedback from a kid. Now he's a big, strong kid, but as you just described, doesn't matter. This is a contact sport. He said, parents, don't tell me that you get worried when you watch me play in goal. So, hey, we'll throw that one on there as well. What's one thing that as a parent, you know, let's say you're, you're watching. Because remember, as a parent of a goalkeeper, you're watching the game, but your kid stands out. He's got a different, or she got a different color jersey. They can use their hands, right? They get a lot of attention. In your experience, how has it been for parents of goalkeepers who are maybe doing it right from the stands and maybe doing it wrong from the stands? You know, what advice would you give to, to these parents? If they're doing anything from the stands, they're doing it wrong. Mm. Anything? Cheering, maybe? Good challenge. Good challenge. Yeah. Positive. Any coaching? Yeah. Any critiquing? From the stands, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I totally agree. Even to the point, particularly if you're in goal and you are flying off the lid because you think it should have been an offside call, which resulted in a goal or resulted in a breakaway yep. that ended up, that's how they got injured. Yep. That is not a place, in my opinion, for particularly a parent of a goalkeeper to engage. Yep. I'm going to reiterate that because that is so important. You know, we have a referee shortage in the country. Almost every sport, refs are quitting. You know, the number one reason they say they're quitting parents, parents, parents. And you know what? Hands up for me, Garrett, when I first met you, you taught me that it was okay to say that you were a hypocrite, right? I am, I am a hypocrite. I understand this in my life as a soccer dad, I have yelled and screamed at refs. Now I've never sworn at them. I've never been really nasty, but I have, I have questioned their calls in a really vocal way. And sometimes in negative way, the number of times the ref has changed their minds zero. The number of times that my kid heard me yelling and berating a ref, 100% of the time. So as I sit here and do the math on that, where's my ROI on yelling at the ref? It's literally negative a trillion. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. Parents, stop doing it. I don't even yell at the refs as a coach hardly anymore. I'm on my, I'm on my soapbox. So go ahead and stop me. I want to keep going for a second. I was a ref starting at 12. This is my first job. I was a ref all through 12 all into my 20s. The one area that I always respected, always, most often respected my coach when he got after the ref was for our safety. Yes, absolutely. He saw retaliation from yep. players that weren't yep. being picked up by the ref. That is one area where our coach would have some choice words. Yep, 100%. But my dad, my dad, he was not talking with the ref. Nope, nope, and good on him. I was going to say the one area where I still yell at the ref is player safety concerns. And by the way, this is a relatively recent phenomenon and I'm not perfect at it, but I have 
in the last three months since I've really started working on this podcast and on these concepts that we've been talking about on the podcast, I have said less and less and less and less in the game. I have clapped more. I have cheered more. I have said more positive upbuilding things. I have a goalkeeper who made long story, but he made a very uncharacteristic mistake and he's beating himself up because he's hard on himself and I'm just cheering him on. I was just so happy for him to be in there and try and get back up and let's go. And this a couple games before the end of the season, I tried something I've never tried before. I wanted to go out to the ref and say, look, this is something you're missing over and over and it's having an effect on the game. What I said to the ref at halftime was, hey man, I really appreciate you being here. I think you're doing a great job. You know how hard that was for me? Very hard, very hard. As it turned out, he kind of smiled at me. He's like, wow, thank you. And then throughout the second half, that issue took care of itself. Now, I'm not saying it was necessarily causation, but I think there is a correlation between you being supportive and, and, and helpful to the ref as a coach and them doing a better job on the field. Right? I just do. And, I, and we're way off on a tangent, but I think that's just so important. Parents, don't yell at the kids. Don't yell at the refs. I did add one tangential piece. Yep. If you look at the, the linemen, typically they're teenagers. Is that fair? Even where you are? Oh, teenagers absolutely. Teenagers running the line? Yep. Do you know how much from an executive standpoint, just call it in the frontal lobe of your brain, has to be firing to appropriately run an offside call? You have to listen for the sound of the kick while maintaining your line, making sure that the player, where they started their run from was or not is, you know, closer to the goal yep. or the whatever. When the ball was kicked, like there's a lot going on. It is a difficult position to be in as a teenager if you expect them, if you're running a flat line, yep. to get every offside call right. And my response yep. to most and, of these- And guess what? And gu 12 year old running, it's like, stop doing a flat back. Yeah, I know that's the coach's issue. Yeah, the, the, the last thing on the refs is they are criminally underpaid for the amount of abuse that they take. I was a ref, I stopped, right? Partially because I was just too busy, but they are criminally underpaid to go get screamed at by a bunch of parents and coaches and teenagers for an hour and a half. Sorry, that's, I mean, if you were doing that, if you went to your day job and that's how you were treated, how long would you stay? Doesn't matter how much you get paid. Anyways, all right, enough on the refs. Let's go to, and I want to finish up with this, Garrett. You are a goalkeeper, but you're also a wrestler. And I think there's a lot in common with those two sports. Now that you are a grown man, you're a dad. You're a dad-to-be with number two on his way. His, her, I don't know if we know that yet. His. His, that's right. Yes, we, you have a wonderful wife. You are, you know, you're an incredible professional. Looking back, playing as a goalkeeper, and I'll, and I'll weave in wrestling. What did you learn that has, that has, that you've taken with you to build a successful, although not perfect, but a successful life? There's something interesting about wrestling that you don't quite find in soccer, which is it takes you to your physical extreme in a very short amount of time, mm -hmm. six minutes, mm -hmm. if you're lucky, two minutes, four minutes, six minutes to an extreme that you just don't get on the soccer field. If I tie them together and you'll see some of the threads that are pulled through is that with a little bit of encouragement, and I'm not saying soft, it can be pretty hard sometimes. Some of my wrestling coaches, pretty hard encouragement, particularly during practice, you can do and go a lot further than you think you can. Hmm. When we would have a team point taken away from us as a wrestling team, it's an individual sport, but if you have a team point, say you threw your headgear afterwards, you get a minus team point. 
which frankly, I can't remember what that does in the end of thing, but I know what it did to us at practice. <laughs> Our coach would pull out a deck of 52 cards and you would get to choose what the activity was that would be associated with the card. And this was after a two hour, three hour practice. This was just, we'll call it punishment for not maintaining gentleman composure during a match. But what it also taught was on the 40th card and 45th card and 47th card when you were but a shell that if you wanted to, there was still something in there. Mm -hmm. What a and lesson that, yeah, that's, that's from wrestling for sure. Yeah. What a, what a lesson. And, and knowing you, as I do, one of the things that, that I really like about you professionally and when we worked together was, was this idea that if you're willing to pay the price, you can learn anything. And a goalkeeper is perfect example because in soccer, generally speaking, let's say 95% of the work done at practice is applicable to everybody except a goalkeeper, right? It's very specialized, right? Most of the time it's possession and it's crossing and it's shooting, whatever it is, but they get very little sp specialized training in most youth team setups. But if you're willing to pay the price, you can learn, you can learn. And in your case, I know in our last job together, you tackled something that you had never done before in founding this company. You'd never done it before. And within a period of time, I'm going to say a year, year and a half, you were recognized outside of just our company as an expert. Now you'll be, you're humble. So you'll be like, yeah, dude, there's so much stuff I don't know. That's true. But you gained recognition and you, you understood it enough to be able to build a product and sell a product and kind of do this really. So I love that lesson. I think it's applicable, particularly to goalkeepers. You guys, you guys have to be driven as self-learners more so than other positions on the field. And what a gift to give to future Garrett, future goalkeepers, you know, when they become grownups, that gift of not being afraid to go be self-learners. It's beautiful. So, well, Garrett, listen, man, we have to talk again. This is so fun. I appreciate your insights and your candor and your stories. Those are great stories. The audience, thanks for joining. Garrett Weldon is one of my favorite conversationalists. You can see why. Parents and coaches of goalkeepers, you just got a treasure trove of wisdom. I hope it helps your sons and your daughters. Subscribe, follow, share this episode with all your fellow goalkeeper parents and coaches. And until next Wednesday, this is Coach Dave. Love the kids, love the game, Dadbot Soccer. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. Share it with all your friends. If you have an idea about a topic you'd like me to cover, hit me up on Twitter at DadBodSoccer. Tune in for new episodes of the Dad Bod Soccer Podcast as we grow this movement to keep youth sports about the kids. As always, love the kids, love the game, Dad Bod Soccer.